Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. some of you and ask some questions just kind of see how the night goes so let's start with this let's talk about the draft let's get the drop draft talk out of the way the browns obviously their first pick as of right now is number 49 and i want to know from all of you now would you trade up round of applause how many people think john dorsey is going to trade up 
Okay, that's a lot of people. How many people think he'll trade all the way up to the first round? Okay, so Mary Kay, let's start here. Number 49, that's where they sit now. Do you think John Dorsey's going to make a trade on Thursday? You know, I think he will try to. I think he will look up into that first round and see how that board is falling. He's been so aggressive, obviously, since he walked through the door in December of 2017. He's not going to stop now. He is going for it, even though he tried to pretend and tell us at the, uh, at the combine that he wasn't going for it. We really didn't believe him. He's still going for it, and he will do the same thing on draft night on Thursday night. If he sees something there in the first round that looks good to him, he will try to go up and get it. Scott, the question, of course, is how much it's going to cost. Is there a cost in your mind that's too much? I'm firmly in the trade-down camp, and I know a lot of people here were clapping for, for trading up. Um, it's hard for me to, to look at this draft and think there are players that are worth multiple draft picks to move up and get. Um, looking at the Browns' needs at cornerback, at linebacker, offensive line, those are all players you can get in the second round. Players you can get at 49, players you can get at 59. Um, so... Will he trade up and get somebody? I, he could. He's made nine draft day trades, six of them in trading up, so he's not shy about it. But um, I, it's a hard sell for me that, to think that there are players in this draft that you want to move multiple draft picks, not just this year, but next year, to go up again. Doug, what about you? Trade up? I have a fear that I need to address with everybody here, and I'm not joking around. I am worried about the Browns getting too many good players. And I'm actually serious, and here's what I mean by that. So they have so many good young players, right? And as we think about this Browns team not just being a playoff team this year, being a Super Bowl team in the near future, you want to sustain this, right? You want to, they're going to have to supplement some of these older guys. They're going to have to find guys in this draft and the next draft who can be those middle-of-the-roster guys, who can be good starters, who can fill in for some of these older guys. They're not going to be able to pay everybody as this team ages. So from this draft, I think in the second round, the third round, the fourth round, they need a safety and a linebacker and a tackle and guys who don't have to start this year but do need to start next year and the year after when they lose some of these older guys. And what I don't think they need is another first-round guy who's going to be great, who's going to be a pro bowler, who when they're trying to pay Miles Garrett and pay Baker Mayfield and pay Denzel Ward and pay these other guys is going to need to be paid as well. So I sound ridiculous. Nobody in the history of the world has ever said the Browns have too many good players. I think John Dorsey, I agree a thousand percent with what Mary Kay said about going for it. I also think they are at a point now where they have top-tier talent. They have to be smart about supplementing middle-of-the-roster talent, and I don't want to trade a bunch of second-round and third-round and fourth-round picks and give up that middle of the roster to go get a first rounder. They have enough top end guys. I do not want them to trade up. Now, judging by our, our go ahead. <laughs> judging by our pre-show conversation, I know Jake loves talking about paying guys and how the Browns are going to pay guys. Yeah, like public speaking 101 is to win the room, right? So trade them all and go get a top 10 pick. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the interesting thing that will happen with their decision to move up or down will be the fifth-year option that comes with the first-round pick. So the difference between a second and first-round pick is that 
with a contract of the first rounder, you get a fifth-year option to keep that player as a part of your franchise for another year. So if they want to go get somebody like Jeffrey Simmons, the defensive tackle who's, who's hurt from Mississippi State, but is a really good talent, if he falls to the end of the first round or somebody like Devin Bush who Doug loves or um, you know a corner that they love, that could be a place that they go to get a guy for an extra fifth year that you can manage. Like Doug's talking about the contract situation, you can manage his contract on a rookie pay scale for another year. So that's a big difference. Um, but they could, at the top of the second round, move up. Some of you didn't clap when we talked about trading up. They are 49th. That's toward the middle of the second round. After the first day, if somebody falls to the top of the second round that they fall in love with, that is a plausible situation in which they could go up maybe with Arizona, maybe go up with somebody else there at the top and get that player that they really like. Because overnight, a lot of thought goes into who's left on the board and all of those things. So that's a potential spot that they can move up while not maybe having to sacrifice quite as much. I do know that the value equivalency of like the 29th pick where the Seattle Seahawks just acquired the 29th pick today in the Frank Clark trade would be around 49 and 80. So if you're sort of looking for what the justification would be for that type of move, they'd have to give up their second and third rounders to move up to that 29-ish range. So keep that in mind. Can I interrupt real quick just because you brought up Jeffrey Simmons. I feel like Mary Kay has been on the Jeffrey Simmons stuff from the, from the beginning on this. He's a guy, I think when people think first round, maybe he's the guy. Could, what's your opinion on if he would be the guy? Would he be worth going to the first round again? Well, Doug, it solves your problem. They would not have too many good players next year. Because Jeffrey Simmons would be redshirting next year. Uh, he recently tore his ACL, so he would be sitting out next year. So this would be a situation where if you did trade up into the first round, once again, you would get the fifth-year option, so you'd get to keep him uh, for that, that last year, uh, and you would basically you know, kind of put him on the shelf. So that actually could be a good option. Uh, the other thing to consider, obviously, though, with Jeffrey Simmons... Uh, is the fact that he does have, uh, you know, that video from high school in his past where he committed violence against a woman. And I asked John Dorsey this at his press conference the other day. Uh, can you make this decision in a vacuum where you just look at Jeffrey Simmons and you try to decide, is he a good person now and won't do anything like that again? Or do you have to make it in the context of the fact that you have already acquired Kareem Hunt? And, you know, do you want to... Ask, I think, maybe in some ways that much of your fan base, uh, you know, to to accept people onto the team that have a past like this. And judging from some of the emails that I get, there are a lot of people uh, that do have a problem with with that sort of thing, even even if it seems as though uh, these guys have turned themselves around and are going to be productive citizens going forward. I probably would go ahead and do it. I, I think that I would be for. Uh, trading up for a player like Jeffrey Simmons for some of the uh, reasons we've recounted here. So we're, we're going to attach some names to number 49 or whatever here in a second, but I want to know from you guys, somebody give me a name. Who do you want the Browns to take? Taylor Rapp. Alright, I'm coming for you. Taylor Rapp, the safety. Ohio State played him in the Rose Bowl. Alright. Just mumbled, torched. Torched him in the Rose Bowl. Can you... You've got to convince. You can't mumble stuff to me. I'm you've got to convince Jake why they should pick Taylor Rapp. I, I saw his pro day on YouTube, and he is ripped. And I just, and I, I want a guy that's a box safety that can help with the run, and I think he's the guy. He'll be there. Okay. Any other names out there? Who wants to, You got one. Justin Lane. I think that's going to be a popular pick when we go back up to the stage. So uh, get us started. 
Well, he graduated from my school, Benedictine, so I think like a hometown kid like Denzel Ward was, it can bring a lot of more fans who wasn't into football to come to the stadium, and he was a, one of the top linebackers at Michigan, so he can be one even though a lot of people, when, we, when he came back to Benedictine, everybody was ragging on him because he went a 4.5, 4.5, but he's a really good DB, so that would be really nice to come from the Browns. You have that all Northeast Ohio uh, corner tandem there. Uh, any other names out there? Somebody wants to shout out before I go back up. Come on now. Dan, while we're at it, that you were just talking to the great Levi Fair. Did I, did, did I get that right? From defensive... Tackle or or and defensive end tight end from Benedictine High School. There we go. Any other names before I go back up to the stage here? Who's got who's passionate? Here we go. Right here in the hat. It can be a 49, it can be a trade-up, whatever you got. Devin Bush from Michigan. Michigan is a tough school, and Devin Bush played a tough school inside linebacker and Brown Z linebacker. Okay. Now, Devin Bush, you might have to trade up to get. I know he's from Michigan, but he's an obvious school. All right, give me one more. Anybody have one more? DeAndre Baker. DeAndre Baker, let's go back here. Running me all over the place here. <laughs> player you want. Yeah. Who's a player you want? All my friends want DeAndre Baker. I like Daniel Savage Jr. Safety. Okay, so we've heard a lot of corners, a lot of safeties. Uh oh, we got a good one here. Devin White, LSU, but he's going to be. Oh, yeah, he's going to be. We have to trade way up to get him. That guy's awesome. Yeah, Devin White, LSU, he's going to be. He, he, he's going like fifth, but yeah. I, I feel bad because I'm, I'm spying on your phone, but you see he's the number one linebacker there on your on your rankings. There. <laughs> um. All right, so let's go back up here to uh, to our stage, and I want to know, we actually shot a video on this, Scott, Mary Kay, and I, so we've got some names picked up, so I'm going to start over on this side of the room. Um, Jake, number 49. Yeah, so, oh, sorry, actually, I'm not that computer. Um, yeah, I think Justin Lane, the cornerback room makes a lot of sense. They, they, you know, there have been a lot of people smarter than myself that do analysis on this stuff, and cornerbacks affect defensive win percentage more than even pass rushers. It's getting to the point that coverage as quarterbacks become better and better, get the ball out faster and faster. Um, secondary play is predominantly one of the most important positions on the entire football field. As quarterbacks have taken over the offense, secondary players take over the defense. So if you want Miles Garrett to get home, which Doug said he was, what, what was that stat you had in the car today? Something about? Uh, Miles Garrett is third in the NFL the last two years in quarterback hits. Yes. So, so he has like 20 and a half sacks in two years, but he gets back there and gets really close a lot. So you need that extra half second or that other, you know, full second to get home. You need those good players to get there. You have Olivier Vernon, you have Sheldon Richardson, a much improved defensive line. You need a little bit more time. Terrence Mitchell, a good player. They got the most out of him. He missed time with a broken forearm. Um, I think John Dorsey likes him as a good option opposite Denzel. Then they had TJ Carey, who's better inside than outside. So a second outside corner would make a ton of sense. And I'm with my man from Benedictine, Justin Lane, is a phenomenal corner. He has the 
Um, if you look at Steve Wilkes' defense, he loves to play zone coverage, not man coverage, and that's a lot of what Justin Lane played at Michigan State, which is a big part of his game. He's a cover three corner, can really get up and challenge the point of football, meaning those high point catches we see quarterbacks toss it up down the sideline. Does a really good job of breaking those plays up, very reactionary, can be a run game support player. And, um, yeah, that Northeast Ohio connection would be fantastic, too. He wants to come here, obviously, if you pay attention to his Instagram, Twitter feed stuff. So he would be a really good football player in this scheme. Tested really well as a football player uh, in the leading up to this draft, and I think it would be a home run for them. Yeah, I, I think I saw a tweet. Uh, it was today or yesterday that he woke up feeling dangerous. So. <laughs> he will fit right in. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I'm kind of in the Justin Lane camp, too, for a lot of the reasons that, that Jake pointed out, I think. It depends who you talk to, right? Some people tell you edge rusher is the second most important position. A lot of people, and there's a growing amount of these people, take corner is the second most important position. If the Browns have two corners that they can write in pen for the next five, six years, that's a big deal. And it moves guys like now Terrence Mitchell doesn't have that pressure to be the number two corner. It puts him in more of a part-time role. T.J. Carey can play more inside, and then you can address that down the road as well. So uh, I'm kind of in the Justin Lane camp, especially if he's sitting there at number 49. I think that's going to be hard to pass up. Scott? Gosh, who did I pick? I think it was Rakiasin uh, Temple, still a cornerback. Um, he was a one-year starter at Temple. He played in an FCS school, like Presbyterian, for a few years, uh, and then uh, moved on to Temple. And think about him, he's, he's known for being physical. Sometimes it gets him in trouble, but he was voted one of the most physical players on Temple. They give out a single-digit jersey to the guys who, who get that honor, so it's a big deal at Temple. Um, former wrestler, probably why he's such a good tackler. He could show Denzel Ward a thing or two about tackling correctly. I think uh, Greg Williams had some things to say last year about that. Um, but yeah, I think either whether it's Justin Lane or, or another cornerback, I think corner is, is is deep enough. And John Dorsey has said more than once that when you look at this draft, uh, there's really good quality in the second and even the third round of that position. So it makes a lot of sense to get somebody who can who can give Miles Garrett and the rest of the crew up front a little more time to to get to the quarterback. Yeah, the other thing too I like about Lane is he's bigger. So he kind of looks different from Denzel Ward. So now you'd have two corners that look a little bit different. He's not huge. But, but he's a little bit more in that Seahawks mold of corners that they like. Mary Kay? Uh, well, I'm not going to hold myself to what we said on a video a few days ago. But uh, Now, if Jeffrey Simmons does fall to them at number 49 because of these concerns that we've talked about, including the ACL and having to redshirt him, I think that would be a good spot for him there. I would also uh, consider trading up for him. And if I did that, I would try to package him, I mean the number 49 overall pick, I might go ahead and try to throw Duke Johnson in there. Why not bring that up now? Uh, you know he doesn't he doesn't want to be here anyways. He's asked to be traded. Can, can, uh, would Duke would Duke and forty nine be enough to get in the first round? No, I don't think so. I I still think they'd have to uh, to go with probably uh, maybe that third round pick, or they can go into next year and and possibly give up a pick next year, which. They hope to even be better next year. Uh, so if they gave up a whatever, a second or third round pick next year, you're hoping that it's going to be a lower pick. Yeah, so if it's like the last pick in the second round next year. That's a Super Bowl joke, people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I would do some of those things. Uh, and then uh, there's another player. Uh, that they brought in for one of their 30 visits. Now, each team can bring in 30 players. They don't work out when they come in here unless they're a local prospect 
on their local prospect day. But those other 30 guys, they come in, they meet with them, they spend a lot of time with them, uh, they put them through the medical paces and things like that. And when you bring a guy in for a 30 visit, you're pretty interested in him or you're trying to throw somebody else off. Uh, but there's a safety from Virginia by the name of Juan Thornhill, strong safety, led the team with 98 tackles, six interceptions, so he's got good ball skills, and this is a team that really, really likes to get those takeaways. Uh, new defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes is really big on those, as was Greg Williams. Uh, he's versatile. He can play nickel. He's played some linebacker. He's got speed. Dorsey loves speed. He, he's like a 4.42 in the 40, and they did bring him in thir- for a 30 visit, so my antennas are up on him a little bit. Doug, real quick, I had a couple questions I want to get to, but real quick, it was yours. I'd think about left tackle, what they did with Austin Corbett last year to draft a guy who was going to be a starter this year. I don't know that Greg Robinson is a long-term answer. I don't know that Chris Hubbard's a long-term answer here. I think there's a possibility there are some athletic, raw tackles. There's a, a mix of them. Greg Little, Yadni Kajus from West Virginia. I think it's possible a guy like that could be at 49 and you take him without planning on playing him this year, but with absolutely planning on him starting next year. So I think if the right tackle, if the correct tackle falls to 49, they should at least think about that. All right. Are you wearing a Super Bowl 2020 shirt? Are you yeah, the person yeah. I said? Show that. All right. I'm going to ask a couple questions here, and we'll give uh, whoever asked the question away. I believe this name... And you can come up and correct me or slap me, whatever, if I get it wrong. Who from Middleburg Heights, who predicts a 9-7 and seven record, uh, is there a position that a rookie could come in and start right now, doesn't see a lot of holes? So, Doug, I think we were actually talking about this beforehand. Yeah. Who asked that? Oh, come on. you got to come to me this time. Come up here. i got something to give you. Doug. No, so this guy right here in the green shirt, he's, sick, he's shaking his head no. And again, too many good players. A rookie can't start here. I don't think there's, there's not a, a spot of desperation. There's not an obvious spot. Like, oh, they've got to get a guy here. A kicker? Uh, let me tell you, John Dorsey has done a lot of good things. If they take a kicker early in this draft, it's all out the window. So, um, no, I, I, like, I, don't, I don't know where, right? I mean, may, maybe it's safety. Maybe... Maybe at linebacker, if you think that Avery is more of a situational guy and not an every-down guy. But, you know, I just think that's, that's how far we've come with this roster that I, I don't think you're sitting at any spot and saying, yeah, for sure, they need a rookie to start there. Yeah, I think look how far we've come since last year. Everybody was upset that Austin Corbett didn't play much at all. And if they drafted somebody in the second round who didn't play much at all this year, I don't think there would be much, much uh, negative impact on that. Okay, this next question. This is Ray. Doug, you know this one's going to hit me right in the feels. Mike Murphy knows the question I don't want to answer. First of all, he predicts 11-5. and Do you think the Browns will draft another quarterback late in the draft? And this hits me in the feels. Because, man, I would love it if the Browns drafted Gardner Minshew. I don't know if he's going to be any good in the NFL, but he's got a great personality, a great mustache, He'd be great to have around for a few years before you can trade him. So, yeah, grab Gardner Minshew if you can. Jake, we're going to be talking air raid in a little bit, and that's the system he comes from. Yeah, so he plays for uh, Washington, Washington State. State. Yeah, so he play, I mean, Mike Leach, if you know the name Mike Leach, he's a 
um, the air raid guru, but he actually learned the air raid from a guy named Hal Mummy, who coached at Kentucky, and that's where they excelled with it. Well, actually, that's a part of the presentation, got a little Tim Couch throwback video for you guys. Um, so yeah, that's where, that's where they went. He would fit in. If you guys know Todd Monk and the Browns hired as the offensive coordinator, he's an air raid system guy. What I mean by system is like the structure by which the offense runs. So you're looking at a, a and there's just sort of a, a system of language, system of understanding between quarterback, receiver, lineman. And uh, it would make sense. Gardner Minshew is a good late-round prospect. If they think that they don't trust Gary Gilbert long-term or Drew Stanton isn't the answer as a backup quarterback, they want to groom somebody. You know, not many teams across the NFL. Pretty much if your starting quarterback gets hurt, your season goes in the tank unless you have someone like Nick Foles there to back you up and then that situation can step in. If they feel like they need somebody more competent, there are certainly names out there or like Boise State's Brett Wrightby, and there are, there are names out there to be had late. And uh, Gardner Mitchell would be a fun name, though. Uh, Mike, Mike Murphy, wherever you are, come on up, too. Uh, you're the one that had that question. So come on up here and get a prize. Uh, Mary Kay, do you think John Dorsey will use a pick on a quarterback in the dug after that? You know, I wouldn't be surprised, only because they came up, this whole front office came up under Hall of Fame executive Ron Wolf, and he always believed that it was really good to draft and develop young quarterbacks. In fact... Uh, I think one of his things that he always said was to draft one almost every year, which I think is way, way, way excessive. But if you can find one in a later round, not only might he someday play for you, but if you draft and if you develop him well enough, you can get something really good in return for him. So it wouldn't be—I wouldn't be surprised if they do draft a quarterback in this draft, even though they signed Gilbert. So my my comment is a question for the Browns beat pack. Um, I'm not going to use the I-N-J-U-R-Y word, but let's say that Baker Mayfield is called uh, away to help orphans for like six weeks, and he's not here. He's helping the poor. Baker Mayfield is not around. Can Drew Stanton or Garrett Gilbert win games? Or, or how, like as we're talking about another quarterback, do they need a number two quarterback that can come in and win games in a pinch? Or is, or is that guy on the roster? Garrett Gilbert is the most prolific passer in the history of the Alliance of American Football. That should not be discounted. The Browns certainly seem to think Drew Stanton can get the job done. They talked him up about him at the Combine. You know, that question got asked by, I'm sure, us and others, uh, you know, to Dorsey. Was Drew Stanton really your backup quarterback? And both him and Freddie Kitchens just, you know, they kind of made sure that we understood that they were firmly behind Drew Stanton and his ability to win games. So... They seem to think so. Well, Freddie Kitchens and Drew Stanton go back a long way. They go back to their Arizona Cardinals days together. They're very, very close. They're tight. Freddie trusts him. He trusts him with his scheme, with his offense, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but And he does have a way of, of winning games, not necessarily because of everything that, that he's done in a football game, but he has managed games well enough to go out there and win games. What, I can't remember what the record is over the last three years. What is it, like 10, 11 and, 11 and well, something? Well, they, they quoted something at the combine, <laughs> but it was actually wrong. It was actually <laughs> off the game, I think. Right. But anyways, Freddie feels very comfortable with him, and that goes a long, long way towards uh, how a team views the backup quarterback. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I think Nick Foles has changed a lot of people's opinions about the backup quarterback, but, I mean, the reality is if we're talking more than three or four games, it's not going to matter. You're going as far as Baker Mayfield is going to take you. So if Drew Stanton can come in and run your system and get the ball to your playmakers and you've got a system around him, 
you could probably win a football game or two. You can probably go one and one, or two and one, or maybe only need to go one and two in a three game stretch. You know, I mean, look at Chase Daniel last year with, with Chicago. Played really well the first game they started, played really poorly the next, but the Bears got what they needed out of him. So I, I think sometimes we talk about backup quarterback a little bit because we're bored, because we can't talk about quarterbacks anymore. I think it matters to an extent, but to me, the reality is you're going to go as far as Baker takes you. Uh, we are going to skip ahead to Jake's uh, film session here, and we will get back. I had Odell Beckham on my card. We're going to talk Odell Beckham. No you guys want to talk about Odell Beckham? No. But first, <laughs> we're going to give these guys a break, and we are going to do a little film segment here with, uh, with Jake Burns. Test. So, uh, Jake, the first thing that we're really going to discuss, and, and we brought it up, we brought it up briefly with Todd Munkin uh, coming in. Obviously, an air raid disciple. Baker Mayfield, when he was at Oklahoma, an air raid system. It's obviously taken over college football. It's making its way to the NFL. So, tell us about the air raid. What What is the air raid? What are its key concepts? Yeah, so I think that the air raid started to become a developing thing in the late 90s. I talked to you guys about how mummy. So it's a system by which you spread out defenses. You work sideline to sideline, 53 yards, and then 53 and a half yards, sideline to sideline, stretching defenses, quick throws, pushing the ball laterally to push it horizontally is a big part of what they do. So I tried to pick a topic. I used to, I used to coach and do film rooms and my players would fall asleep. I, I try to keep them entertained. Um, I got some Baker Mayfield clips, so that'll help a little bit. But um, yeah, so what it is was a system developed to help quarterbacks, wide receivers get the ball, get out in space, make plays. Um, you, you think of like Michael Crabtree at Texas Tech, Cliff Kingsbury when he used to play at Texas Tech under Mike Leach, and then sort of it's worked its way all across. Dana Holgerson, the West Virginia head coach, has adopted this scheme, came from it at Oklahoma State. It sort of all morphed its way into Todd Munkin, who coached at Oklahoma State. And then has worked his way in the NFL with Jacksonville, um, through Tampa Bay, and now into Cleveland, and it's sort of a mesh. So um, it's it's we're going to look at a concept that the Browns employed, and a lot of the NFL does. Even high school level teams encompass what's called four verticals, which you have four wide receivers on the field. You push the ball down the field vertically, challenging the deep coverages of defense. So that's the goal of what this concept is. So this is the way back win picture here of of. Leach here on the right, which is Gardner Minshew's coach, which we just talked about, how mommy, these guys were the staff when Tim Couch um, obviously was playing at Kentucky, almost when the Heisman came to Cleveland in 99, right? So this is why Tim Couch broke all those records. This stuff is morphed. I was talking to Doug about this on the podcast. Um, it's, it, these sorts of principles never used to be in high school football. But if you go watch high school football across the state of Ohio now, you see more and more spread-based teams, more wide receivers, quarterbacks throwing the football all over the field. It's become more and more popular. So like Dan mentioned, it has made its way from college to the NFL at a higher rate. Okay, so if you kind of, well, there it goes. So if you look at what this is saying, is this is back in the Kentucky days with Couch, you would have what's called two-by-two uh, two wide receiver set. So teams call this doubles, one direction or the other. So you have one, two, three, four. The idea here is you want to push the ball down the field by stretching defenses deep. Now listen, back in 1998, there wasn't great film quality, and uh, bear with me, you can't see the whole field here. But if I could, I'm sorry, I'm an amateur at this thing. All right, we're getting there, and we're on it. Look at that, it's 
playing and everything. So the idea here is push the ball downfield, get your best wide receivers in one-on-one -on -one matchups, and take advantage deep down the field. Pretty simple concept. So what it's saying is, if we can scroll back down, modern technology. Aaron Layton close down there. Oh, we're almost there. Right? Oh, oh, there it is. Okay, so this is a diagonal draw. This is what the players see. These guys spend all this time in Berea. They're looking at playbooks. How does this all look in a playbook? This is the sort of stuff you would see. So literally vertical by nature means running in a straight line downfield. So this is what these guys are going to do. They're going to take a look at running at landmarks. So if we're in a two-by-two two set, you're going to equally space the different parts of the field. Outside the numbers, outside the hash, outside the hash, outside the numbers. The corners on the outside have to cover deep. The safeties in the middle of the field have to cover deep as well. Pretty simple stuff, right? Any questions? I should ask it. If you have something to ask, just throw it up. If you tell me to shut up, I'll shut up too. Either way. So you can do this. The beautiful part of this is you can do it from any formation. You can do it from empty, meaning no backs in the back, but you would take this guy out. You can do it from three by one. You ever heard of the saying trips formation? That's what they call three by one formations. Pretty simple stuff. The only difference is instead of this guy being in the slot over here, you put him in a three by one formation, which drives him across the field. Okay, so that's the, the point here is to then create the four vertical package at the top. Okay, so here's what your quarter, this is the big part of what we do. What does Baker Mayfield see on a Sunday? What is he reading? His eyes are downfield. He's a magician, but what is he looking at? So if you get what is called a single high safety, you are reading this triangular FS. Seems simple enough, right? If he jumps this direction, where do you think I'm throwing the football? To the left, right? If he jumps this direction, over here. Pretty simple stuff, seemingly, right? This is a play from earlier in the year. This is week one. Heartbreaking tie. Should have won this game. Let's take a look at a play. Now, this isn't Baker. This is Tyrod. Okay? Let's take a look at why this play wasn't successful. So, we're looking at three by one. Now, the, the question comes, can I rewind this? Okay, so. This is the problem. If I can get this fancy software to work, hold on, bear with me. I swear it's easier sometimes to just get down here. <laughs> I think one of the things too, as you know, when Todd Munkin came in and I, you know, I was doing some research on the air raid and the spread and all of that. One of the really kind of parallels I liked is calling it kind of basketball on grass in some ways. You're trying to create one-on-one -on -one matchups. You're trying to create space for guys to work and allow them to make decisions either in their routes when they have the football in their hands. There's a lot of kind of basketball concepts, how you know NBA teams like to spread the floor out now and shoot threes. They're trying to create matchups, one-on-one -on -one matchups, and trying to beat those. So I've got a question down here. I'm going to run down here with the mic. Yeah, absolutely. You should take a mic. There are four of them up here. Shoot. Go ahead. How much of an impact do you think the new rule change of the NFL with the referees and, and the instant replays is going to have an effect on plays like this? Well, um... That's now the, the pass interference question because we can review pass interference. So that's tough to say. We're going to have to feel it out for a year. I mean, I think it only benefits quarterbacks, right? Quarterback offenses because you can challenge anything that you think is a risky call. That's split second. If you have somebody in the booth who can take a look at it real quick, that's certainly something that you can take advantage of. I don't think it works in the defense's favor very rarely. Um, but boy, that's going to be a weird rule change. I'm not sure I have a great answer. What do you got? It's another good one. So pick play meaning a wide receiver comes off the line of scrimmage, runs into somebody else's man. Yep, pass one yard, the legal rule area. 
yeah, that, that could become dicey too. I don't know if they're going to allow that to be. If it's not an on-ball situation, I'm not sure. I don't know if they're going to review anything that's not like an in-air blatancy thing. So, yeah, I don't have a great, I don't have a great answer on that. We'll feel it out, maybe answer it next year. Okay, so let's, let's get back to this and, and let's see what, obviously you said this is not Baker Mayfield, this is Terod Taylor yeah. in the first game, but let, let's quickly kind of go through what the quarterback sees and, and why this is a good system for Baker. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. So we're looking at, off the snap, we had three by one. We talked about it on the last design. You space the field out evenly. This tight end is going to run over this direction. Outside the numbers, this top wide receiver, who's the Z, two yards off the sideline, right? This is the guy you need to make a decision, right? Make him choose here or here, but make him declare which direction he is going. Let's take a look at where he ends up going. You get a better feel of the end zone view here, okay? This play should have been a touchdown. Watch where Tyrod's eyes are here. He never looks this guy here. Look at the middle of the field. We see the middle of the field there. Now, this is not, I mean, I don't mean it to be a bash tie rod session, but if you hold the safety down or throw here, that's an easy throw, right? It should be an easy, simple concept. It shouldn't be batted down. It should be an easy play. And then to go back to the basketball parallel, you had two guys, one defender. You make that defender choose one guy and go to the other guy. So essentially a two-on-one fast break for the receivers. Go ahead, Jake. Yep, we yep, have a yep. question down here we'll go to. You go ahead to the next slide. All right, so out of two by two, same system, you do sometimes get two safety looks. If you guys can see, if I can get this thing working right, you're going to see two high safeties. Teams will play what's called even coverage up top, meaning two safeties. Instead of, somebody mentioned Taylor Rapp earlier, Taylor Rapp's the strong safety that would duck into the box and play run support. You get a single high safety, you get two. What's known as cover two and cover four. What I mean by cover two and cover four is deep portions of the field are covered. If it's cover two, these two have the deep section of the field. Deep halves is what coaches call them. They have corners playing support towards the line of scrimmage. If it's cover four, you get all four guys playing deep coverage. That's why it's called cover four. In this situation, you don't want these vertical guys running into the safeties. That would be silly, would not be beneficial for spacing. So what we did in college when I was playing quarterback, we would tag a left or a right, and it would say, this guy is the breaker if it's even coverage. He will break to the middle of the field. Some teams, some schemes will say we will bend a guy to the middle of the field, both of them. They're called bender routes. When I write, I talk about those all the time. They're pretty popular NFL concepts. You're just bending. Once you clear this linebacker, you bend your route back inside. Okay, so I know you got a couple slides for us as yep. to how the Browns actually used this last season before Todd Munkin arrived when Freddie Kitchens was calling plays. So show us a couple of those if, if you've got them. Yeah, let's, let's talk about – well, Baker did this week three, so he came in to uh, sort of pseudo-save the day. So let's take a look at that. You'll see a good example here. So we're getting – this tight end clearing what's called this bender route right here. You see him working back inside. Baker does a good job of stopping him from getting hit by that safety. So you want to, as he clears the linebacker, keep him from getting hit by the safety, but hit in that window, that tight window that you get once you clear the second level. So let's keep going. So Ohio State runs this. This is their 2014 playbook. I won't tell you how I got it. <laughs> Doug, don't tell anyone. Right? So this is how it looks in playbook form. These things are, I don't know if, you have, if you've ever had a son that plays or you played, these playbooks get pretty elaborate. There's all these different things that can happen. 
Uh, based on the coverage, if it's too high, you're going to bend the route in. We are just talking about bending uh, seams and landmarks and all this fun stuff. This looks like something from you know, a, a hidden treasure map or something along those lines. But this is what it looks like. Because you have to tell all of these 11 guys what they're doing. This is just the quarterback's base progression. So you're working through all of these different progressions on each play. So we try to, when we write these X and O film room labs, we try to portray how much goes into each play, the thought process, the millions of decisions that seem to happen. Those are what we're talking about. Another example of Ohio State from the different set here, three by one, same sort of thing, just to look at what a playbook is going to show in those situations. So let's look at some game examples. So the Browns use this, uh, use this concept against the Ravens, if you guys recall. Remember a couple long touchdowns? They use this stuff pretty frequently. So off the snap, right, this is the ball flip play. I'm down here on one knee. I'm improvising for you guys on the fly. So we have three by one, right? This guy back here, you'll see his name's Tony Jefferson. He's their safety. Guy wanted to come to Cleveland. I'm glad he's not here uh, now because they torched this guy a couple times. They ran this vertical concept. So they are going to send Duke Johnson, this little ball flip you'll see here, sell the run action. It's going to be a four vertical concept, driving the tight end to the opposite side. Jarvis Landry's going to go up the hash, and then we're going to have outside the numbers, outside the numbers. Let's see how it looks. All right, ball flip. Boy, that looks pretty easy. Wide open. Simple enough, right? Looks good on TV, but what happens up top? Let's take a look. So this guy here is who you pay attention to. And this is why Freddie Kitchens was really good as a play caller. This motion right here, watch what it does to him. Well, this is pretty cool. And we're out. Right here, watch him jump. Do you see him jump outside for a split second on this guy? Watch what's open. Wide open. That's all it takes. Sometimes little gimmick parts of offenses, but the four verts puts pressure on the safety. Let's keep going. Got one more example. So this is another one. The Baltimore game was a great example of this. This time, we get three verticals. You can do vertical concepts from three players. Okay? Equal spacing. For whatever reason, Eric Weddle, who they have since let go, unfortunately, decides to run up, leaving the middle of the field wide open with perfect spacing. Unfortunately, it hits him right in the helmet and he drops it. Sounded like everybody remembered that. <laughs> this, is a good deal. this safety jumps is a pretty open, pretty easy throw, and hey, Odell's here. We'll forget about that, right? All right, so one more. Now, another concept that they do to use vertically is what's called mills. This uh, concept, you remember Steve Spurrier? Does that name sound familiar? Used it excessively in his Florida days, uh, back in those Florida Danny Warfel days, if those ring a bell to anybody in the 90s. So this concept, they're going to put a burden on this safety, play side safety. What, what, what all of football is, is putting a defender in conflict. You want to make a defender have to make a choice on every play. The quarterback then reads that choice player, and you throw off of him. It's pretty simple. Not always that simple, but the rudimentary part is pretty simple. So you say, if the free safety jumps this, what's called a dig route at 10 yards, throw the post over the top. Pretty easy, right? I got a couple plays where we do just that. If he sits on the post over top, you have the dig route. Also pretty simple. So let's see how it's applied. Even got fancy slides between. Okay. This is at home, week five. You are going to get a dig route, a dig route, 
and then this guy out here, Hollywood Higgins, on a poster out over top. Watch Mr. Jefferson, who I mentioned earlier, watch his decision-making. Ooh, I even drew it up for you guys. And hopefully it plays soon. There we go. Hey, read safety. Nice. Watch what he does. Jumps the dig. And pretty easy touchdown over the top if it ever plays through. There it is. Right? Got to make somebody read. Right there. Dig. Easy throw. He's jumping. He's, that's his oh crap moment. I'm burnt. And easy enough. So the Browns said, I like that concept. Freddie Kitchens takes over as the play caller. Right? Takes over week nine. He watches the game before the game before the Browns play Baltimore. He watches the Chargers run a quad set. They motion it back out. Four by one. Quads. Right? One, two, three, four. And they say, this guy right here is working up the hash wide open, but Phillip Rivers doesn't have time to see him. So let's see what it looks like. He's pretty open, right? They didn't have time to throw it to him. Now, the Browns say, let's use the similar thing. Let's motion this guy out. Let's run four by one, the same look. Let's put the same safety in a decision. Watch what he does. He's going to bite on Jarvis's dig route. Easy touchdown. Same concept. That's how coaches do it. They take a look at the game from, from the week before. This is a weakness in their defense. This is how we exploit it. So that's what they did. Question. So, so, I mean, if you're playing safety, which is a probably approximate distance from me to you, you can't tell where my eyes are necessarily looking. But you can tell my helmet. Like, if my helmet's looking this way, you're probably going to feel and gravitate naturally this way. So, when you're putting defenders in conflict like we saw there, it's important to at least hold their vision. So, if you're telling me four verticals, I have a safety in the middle of the field, I want to go, if I want to pull and eventually throw left, is how you're always coaching your quarterbacks, Take them where you want to take them with your eyes. So if I have four verticals that are running two by two beside me, I'm going to look right and come back left. I'm going to look left and come back right. The guys who get in trouble is when they stare things down, which is what you saw Tyrod do in that first snap against Pittsburgh. He stares at it too long, doesn't move somebody. That's when you run into issues. So I would expect more of this. I would expect them to push the ball downfield more. Todd Monken had the highest first down play action percentage uses in the NFL last year at Tampa Bay. I think the Browns are going to do this early and often. I think Baker Mayfield has a good downfield arm. I think he's got a good ability to read a defense, find those windows that shorter quarterbacks need to find. And uh, you throw a wide receiver like Odell Beckham in, which is what we have next. You just have another good player. If I can. Too many good players! There it is. <laughs> so how this translates to Beckham and Odell. That's the same player. Landry and Odell. There it is. So, here's what the Browns like to do. Or sorry, what else, this is the, the best that we can do. We took a look at, I threw this crazy idea today. I said, hey, let's look at what LSU did with, with, uh, with Odell and, and Jarvis. Because this is the last time we saw them play together. Their coach at the time was none other than Adam Henry. 
their first year together, they played under him as the offensive coordinator. He's the Browns wide receiver coach. He's going to be heavily involved in how they use these two guys. So let's just take a look. What they did, we talked about how the Browns used vertical passing game. They did a bunch of stuff out of trips. So they would put Odell in this position right here, put Landry. Uh, they would actually interchange the two of them. They would put them both inside. You're, you're used to seeing, like, Odell is what's called the X, which is on the backside on the ball position. Um, your big post receiver who can go up and get the football and run any route in the playbook. But instead, they put them in the slot right here and uh, let them just kill interior coverage defenders. It was really so easy. I got Zach Mettenberger drafted, which is a miracle, the quarterback. And, yeah. Um, those two are good. So let's, yeah, I just have a little montage here of some of the stuff they did with those two guys pushing the ball downfield vertically. So just a vertical concept, wiggle route, Landry in the middle of the field. That's an easy touchdown. And a nice slide. So you're going to push vertical, bend him against a weak middle linebacker in coverage. It's too easy. They did this often. Again, inside position, out of three by one, vertical route, Odell draws attention. Here, double covered, Landry's open for one-on-one -on -one matchup. Makes a nice catch. I think. That's pretty good. That's good. That's a nice play. It's a catch. It's a catch. Same thing. Vertical routes, let Odell draw coverage. Right? Then you can find Landry to take advantage of it. They did this stuff really often. It's a part of what I expect them to do with both of these guys. Um, Odell played about 150 snaps in the slot last year, so I think you will see him do more of that. And then we talked earlier about Mills. This is the last one. That dig route with the post over the top. So here they are in two. It's supposed to be easier with technology, right? Odell or Landry in the slot runs a dig. You have this guy over the top, which we hope to see plenty of this in brown and orange right there. So just a dig route with the post over top, one-on-one -on -one coverage for a really good wide receiver in, uh, in Odell. So we tried to take a look here at what they will do with these guys. We got a pretty good idea of what they will do. And uh, we'll be ready to do all the X's and O's next year to cover it. All right. That's all I got. Does everybody feel smarter? Thank you. Let's bring everybody else back up here. Uh, I got a question here that uh, Craig... I'm not going to try and say your last name. I apologize. Uh, Craig handed to me kind of sneakily here, but I think it's interesting. I'm going to ask it of Mary Kay because uh, Tim Couch got a mention up here. Mary Kay, you covered Tim Couch. Oh, my God. We're dating me again. I'm sorry. It was amazing. It was amazing that you were covering an NFL team at the age of nine. I know. Child prodigy. What is – this is kind of a fun one. What's the Browns' 2019 record with a rookie Tim Couch? Whoa. Well, I will Come tell you. Your prize, by you the way, Greg. I will tell you that if he had people running four verts, and if he <laughs> and if he had Todd Munkin and you know the uh, the coaches that descended from Mike Leach and, and Hal Mummy, I think he would have been very successful. I was a Tim Couch fan to begin with, but you know he was. Uh, you know, he just really was in a no-win situation. So I think he would be successful in, in a 2019 offense. Uh, I would say in, if you plugged him into this offense, I would think that he could win at least nine games next year. Which goes to the whole point of all this. We all know it starts with Baker, right? 
But the point is they built a team around Baker Mayfield before they dropped the quarterback into this, which obviously Tim Couch was not the beneficiary of. I mean, I think it's, it's, that's a great reminder of where the Browns are. It's not, it starts with the quarterback, but they are more than the quarterback. Okay, let, let's talk about the Browns' uh, pseudo-first-round pick this year, a guy by the name of Odell Beckham, a guy who could have been a first-round pick back in 2014, but we won't talk about Ray Farmer and Mike Patton here. Uh, let, let's talk about Beckham, because obviously he has been the, uh, the center of, of speculation. And uh, Terry from Euclid, who predicts a 10-6 and 6 record, uh, and come get your prize after I ask this, by the way. Uh, wants to know about Beckham. Obviously, this was a big change for him. And they're uh, asking, did, did he really want to come here? Some have questioned this. You know, my opinion, you know, I think it was a big life change for him. He's come from New York. He's in his mid-20s. It's a tough move to make. I think he had to deal with that a little bit. But I think once he gets on the field with Baker Mayfield and sees what they can do together... I think they'll be pretty happy. Mary Kay, you wrote about his tweet storm yesterday. But, uh, you know, I, I think once he really gets out there and really sees what he can do, any trepidation he might have will be gone. Yeah, I think so. I don't think he really uh, wanted to come here in the beginning. I, I think he was really rattled by this whole thing. I think it took him a long time to come to grips with it. Uh, I think he's still processing it. I wrote a story today that he's not here for the – uh, voluntary mini camp that's going on right now. It's the extra mini camp that they give new head coaches. So he's not here for that for whatever reason. Uh, I'm hoping that he just missed his flight and he'll be here tomorrow. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but I think, I do think that once he gets here and starts catching balls from Baker Mayfield and starts to see the possibilities, all those things that bothered him in New York with Eli that he is on the record is talking about. I think some of that will evaporate. I mean, if you really are all about winning and if you're all about the team and you're trying to, to go to the Super Bowl, then he should be very, very happy here. Would you want to go to work with Eli Manning every day? No. I would. No. He should be thrilled to be here. Gosh, this is a great place. Sorry. <laughs> Why would you want to be here? It's the best team. I would say the best team in the NFL. Listen. If you are a receiver and your quarterback can't get you the ball, you would be grumpy. <laughs> Baker Mayfield is going to get this guy the ball. I don't think he knows what, what's in store for him. I don't think he has any realization of how good this could be. It had to be dizzying to him to know that they were willing to get rid of him instead of Eli Manning. And that they, the year before, they were willing to draft a running back, number two overall, instead of drafting a quarterback and using... Odell Beckham Jr. in the prime of his career. Um, I think that was a lot of the, the, I have to wrap my head around it stuff. Not so much that I didn't want to go to Cleveland. It was, they didn't want me. They, they wanted Eli Manning instead. And there was something like Eli Manning threw only 60% of his throws to Beckham that were in a catchable window, meaning out in front and able to get out and not break stride, have to reach back. So some of those highlight plays that we saw, the, the, the one-hander against the Cowboys or some of the silly ones, like, you, might, you might not see him at Cleveland, because it's in a good spot to catch. So he might be able to just make open field plays and not have to do the heroic stuff. So, yeah, I would imagine going from Eli to Baker is quite the, uh, the wake-up yeah. If you make a one-handed catch, that was a bad throw. Yeah, that's a terrible throw. But maybe Jarvis will throw him, you know, be a little bit off, and he can still make some of those catches. Uh, I got a question here. I have a real hard time taking the Giants seriously last year or this year when Pat Shermer 
Is there head coach? Yeah. That's problem. Comments? Is, is, there, is there anything to comment on about that? Doug's, Doug's working up for something. I, this again, this I think goes to Freddie a little bit, right? And I feel like the Giants and Shermer didn't know how to make Odell feel comfortable, didn't know how to let him be himself. I think Freddie Kitchens, of all the things that a coach has to do, I think he's going to be good at that. I think Freddie Kitchens is going to let a guy like Odell Beckham be himself. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I agree with what you said. But I, I think it's a, a distinct contrast to the way I'm expecting Freddie Kitchens to run things here. I think it's more. I think it was more so the quarterback than anything there, though, uh, more so than it was Pat Shermer, because Pat Shermer has learned a lot of offense since he's been here. Uh, he spent a lot of time with Chip Kelly. He's incorporated a lot of different uh, offensive philosophies into his own playbook and in, into his own scheme. So I don't think it was that as much as it was as we talked about before that Eli just wasn't able to get the ball to Odell Beckham Jr. in the way that he's going to be getting it from Baker. So, Doug gives us a good segue here. Um, we're going to talk about Freddie Kitchens specifically, but first, we got to frame that a little bit. So, I want to know, I'm going to, we're going to do one of those applause polls again that are real official. Um, I'll come back. The panel's opinion. The Giants' rationale when they traded has a lot to show before you can start calling him a first-round pick. That would net you Odell Beckham Jr. We'll, we'll say that. Um, Freddie Kitchens, uh, obviously expectations are high, so let's see how high. How many people think eight wins next year? So wait, wait. If they think at least eight, should they clap? No, no, no. no. We're going only specific, specific okay. wins. We're going to start at eight. How many think eight? One guy. Hey, you pragmatist. <laughs> Nine wins. Right. Now we're going to get into some fun here. Ten wins. Eleven. I know I had a sheet of paper that said eleven. It was in the Dudley Maurice Club with twelve. Anybody going to thirteen? She's wearing a Super Bowl 2020 shirt. Does that mean year 2020 or like the season of 2020? Are we talking Miami here in February? Okay, okay. Anybody, anybody throwing out 14? Okay, okay. But that being said, listen, 10 wins, 11 wins, 12 wins, those are big numbers. Those are big expectations for a guy who hadn't called a play in a real game until halfway through the season, has never been a head coach. Can Freddie handle these expectations? Is anyone in our panel thinking to themselves, let's kind of wait and see if Freddie can actually handle this job before we start saying 13 wins or 12 wins or something like that? I'm not worried about Freddie handling anything. I don't think that that's the issue. I mean, you know, Sean McVay didn't have to 
worry about handling anything in his first year on the job. If you have a really good quarterback and a really good supporting cast and a much improved defense this year, it's going to be really easy to handle things, I think. I mean, even if you look at Kyle Shanahan, what's Kyle Shanahan's record with Jimmy Garoppolo and without Jimmy Garoppolo? If you have a really good quarterback, you have a chance to be a really good coach. It helps a lot. I like it. I like it. Bold. If, if you're afraid of, of, of what might happen with Freddie Kitchen calling plays, I think a lot of people look back at Hugh Jackson and think, well, he didn't really work out that great, calling plays and being the head coach. Um, but it's a lot different calling plays and being the head coach when Deshaun Kaiser is your quarterback or Cody Kessler is your quarterback compared to, to Baker Mayfield. Plus, Freddie has said more than once that he's all about getting input from everybody. Um, you know, he, he wants his meetings to be more uh, more open discussion. So I think he's not somebody who's going to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to stick with it and, and we're going to get through this and, 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 and I'm in charge, much like we saw Hugh do during uh, Hard Knocks to a, to a certain extent. So I think uh, Freddie seems like the kind of guy who's who's going to take more input and, and understand that yeah, this is too big for me that I'm, I'm willing to make changes. But but we do have an interesting point back there that one of our, our 10 and 6 predictors who predicted a 2 and 5 start. All of a sudden, this is something Freddie's going to have to deal with. You know, whether it's this year or next year, at some point this team is going to lose a game they shouldn't lose. They're going to lose three in a row. They're going to be 1 and 4 after five games in a year when they're supposed to be Super Bowl contenders. There is kind of a lot that he has to deal with he's never dealt with before, and we're not going to know until we actually see how he handles, you know, hey, you just lost your third game in a row, now you're standing at a podium ten minutes after. It's a very different role. Jake, I knew you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you have to manage personalities, um, and that's and that seems to be what he does best. Like, he just seems to be a relatable, I'm not going to tell you something and then turn around and tell somebody else something different. I'm not going to have you come into my office and ask about playing time and say, hey, run to Todd Haley. That guy can give you the answer. He's going to deal with you man-to-man and talk to you about what needs to be done to get where you need to go. And I think, too, a big part of what makes me feel good about Freddie is is the staff that they put around him. Yeah. The likes of James Campen, who came from Green Bay, one of the better offensive line coaches in the NFL. Um, you know, their, their, their ability with um, Stump. What's Stump's last name? Just a great Mitchell. Mitchell. Great beard. Um, running back coach. Uh, all the way to Derrick Henry. And then, and, and then obviously uh, keeping Todd Monken around like they were able to keep him. And then obviously you get Steve Wilkes. He might have only had one year of head coaching experience, but he, he's built good defenses in Carolina and Arizona and um, they can do those things. They, they have enough intelligent people. Uh, they have a new special teams coach who I believe in can be a really good, do a really good job. They haven't had a good special teams in quite some time. It's a total overhaul of the coaching staff, and I think that that makes a difference. If it was Freddie and a bunch of guys who don't know what they're doing, it would be different. But he surrounded himself with enough smart people, and he takes, like Scott said, he takes opinions from everybody. He wants to know what you think as a player. What are you most comfortable doing? How can I help you excel in the field? Not, we're going to do this, and I said so because I'm driving the bus. That's not the message. The message is, the message is, what can we do collectively? Who can we put in the best situation week to week, practice to practice, to help us get where we need to get? And that collective approach is what wins football games and what helps personalities gel. There's a question up there. I don't know if we want to... Uh, we'll, we'll come to it okay. in one second. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, having said all that, and I agree with all of that, I do think that the personalities that are coming onto the team for this year and the collection of personalities 
uh, I do think that it will present some challenges. I really, I, we've already seen some of those things uh, that Odell can be difficult to figure out a little bit. Uh, Baker's a very, very strong personality. I mean, I hear things just about even what practices are like once we leave that practice 20 minutes later, uh, you know, after we watch warm-ups and things like that. Uh, he's a very, very dynamic, strong personality on that practice field, which you would want him to be. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that uh, that this football team has a collection of, of guys that – you know, that are going to be, that at times might be tricky to handle. Uh, but I think Freddie is, is ready for that. So I'll just say really quickly, number one, I think that ra- expectations are one thing. The hardest thing for a new coach to overcome is lousy players. So you'd much rather be a new coach with high expectations. I don't want to be a head coach that everyone thinks you're going to go 2-14. and 14. The other thing is, when I went to Alabama and I talked to people who know Freddie and I wrote a five-part series about Freddie Kitchens, I do think there is something about Freddie's background. His father, who was the most important person in his life, had a very strong personality that a lot of people found difficult to deal with, but he also shot you straight. He didn't beat around the bush. You kind of loved him or you hated him, but he was a super loyal guy. I thought in that moment that that reminded me of the way people people talk about Baker Mayfield. I think there is something about the way Freddie Kitchen sees the world that will allow him to deal with some of these challenging personalities, which nobody would deny that that's the case. He's never done it before, and the thing that maybe I would question is if they hit a losing streak and his team needs a kick in the butt, I think it, it seems like Freddie's more of a player's coach. If he has to go in there and tell this locker room, this isn't acceptable, you guys aren't getting it done how will he handle that? I think dealing with strong personalities, I think it was a happy accident that the Browns found him, but I actually think there's something about him that's built to deal with people like that. So uh, one of those strong personalities, some questions I want to get to so we can give some stuff away here. Uh, Charlie, Fairview Park, uh, where are you right there? Oh, my Josh Rosen guy! All right, come on up and get something. All right, so he's, he's the question is, you know, by what game will Odell Beckham be complaining he's not getting the ball enough? That's obviously something Freddie Kitchens, though, would have to deal with if Odell Beckham does not feel he's not getting the ball enough. Or Jarvis Landry doesn't. Um, is there any... Doug, you've said he can't have enough talented players. And you're right, but is there any concern that Freddie can handle those situations? I'll get out of the way real quick on this. In 2015, Ohio State had a ridiculous amount of talent. Ezekiel Elliott, Michael Thomas, Braxton Miller... They tried too hard to divvy up the ball equally rather than just run an offense. And the result was their offense, with all that talent, was off kilter for two months. The worst thing that the Browns can do is try to keep everybody happy. Go where the defense says to go with the ball, win the game, and Freddie's going to have to deal with it afterward. I'm not super concerned about that because I think Odell will be fine when – in a place with a good quarterback and where he's going to win. But you cannot try to be fair and equal because all it's going to do is screw up your offense. If Odell Beckham Jr. doesn't get the amount of passes he wants, it isn't because it's going to be because Baker Mayfield can't get him the ball. And that's a big difference between what he went through the last few years. Uh, he's been to the playoffs once in his career. I think if they're winning, he isn't, he's not going to care. As long as they're winning and he's, he's contributing uh, you know, the number of catches, it, it's 
Okay, uh, a couple other questions here. Um, this one has to do with John Dorsey and his relationship with Freddie Kitchens. Basically, how involved will John Dorsey be? This is uh, as far as the day-to-day -day activities with the Browns, Mary Kay. How, how involved do you think John Dorsey will be with the day-to-day -day stuff that, that Freddie's going to be charged with? He's very, very involved. Those guys are together all throughout the whole Brian entire day. Fields. And, uh, and not only that, John Dorsey helped him assemble this excellent coaching staff. They're working in lockstep on everything. They get along really well. And uh, every decision that they make is basically hand-in-hand hand at this point. They're probably going to talk to each other, you know, 20 times a day. Their offices are very close to each other. And John will be very, very involved in the day-to-day -day operation of the team. From, from John, you mean? You know what? I don't think Freddie's worried about that at all. I, I think Freddie, again, is collaborative, open to all kinds of ideas, and whatever kind of help he needs from anybody, he's not going to be too proud to ask for it, and I think that uh, he'll accept and welcome that input from anybody. But the other point is Dorsey is Freddie's boss because they changed the structure, right, which we all think is an important step that they figure that out there. Freddie Kitchens and John Dorsey are not trying to outdo each other. Dorsey is ahead of Freddie, and everybody knows that. Okay, where's Dan from Mayfield Village? Right here, Right here. Okay. You guys ready to talk kickers? Because Dan had a kicker question for us. Here, you go ahead. You go ahead and ask it. Stand up. No, uh, we're a kicker. Um, Greg Joseph, do you think we're prepared to go throughout the whole season with him as our place kicker? <laughs> well, you know what? I actually think that John Dorsey sees something in Greg Joseph and really likes him. He was a rookie last year. Uh, he likes Greg Joseph. He's pointed out statistics to show that, um, you know, that Greg Joseph had a better percentage, I think, than Stephen Gatkowski from the Patriots. And I think that he feels that with another year under his belt, he'll develop and he'll work into a, a good NFL kicker. But he will also bring in competition, so we'll see how it ends up. He's got another question for you. I know we got a new special teams coach. Are we going to cut down on whenever we get a decent run back, it's called back by the it seems like it happens at least 50% of the time with the Browns, throughout the NFL too, but the Browns in particular. Any comments on that? Historically, they were the worst special teams unit in a long time last year. So the only places to go is up. I mean, I, I can't think of his name offhand. Do you guys remember the new from Minnesota? Mike Prefer. Mike Prefer. Yeah, so Mike, Mike's done a good job in Minnesota with their special teams groups. Um, I would imagine the emphasis will be on cutting down on penalties. Too many penalties, too many holding calls, like you said, on a good run back. Uh, just bonehead decisions. And I think that they're too going to look at guys in the draft who can help with special teams. Somebody we talk about Ohio State guys in a little bit. Terry McLaurin is a fantastic gunner, a fantastic guy on punt team, punt return, uh, kickoff team, those sorts of things. So those traits will be things that they try to find in guys. And I have to imagine that that will be a heavy emphasis going into next year is how do we take the special teams unit from just flat out costing us points in a game to becoming a respectable part. Freddie did mention that in a recent press conference as a huge part of the, the three phases special teams will be uh, moving forward. So I hope it goes up. That's my thought. Okay. I got one more hat to give away, and it's going to go to this question. And then we're going to do, we got, some, we got a shirt, and then we have a grand prize to give away as well. Um, 
but that's going to be just a drawing. So you don't have to do any work for that. Uh, is it Doug? Doug Imhoff? Doug Imhoff? Over here? All right. This is an Ohio State question because we haven't talked to Ohio State. Doug is our Ohio State guy, and he just wrote about this. Uh, Ohio! Man, Ohio State people know how to spell, don't they? Why do you think the Big Ten has not had a first-round quarterback picked in 25 years? Kerry Collins, right? Kerry Collins in 1995 was the last one. Drew Brees was the first pick in the second round. He was close. Uh, I did a whole Sunday column on this this week. Um, one of the things is that Ohio State is Ohio State is responsible for a third of the NFL draft picks out of the Big Ten in the last 23 years since 1995, and Ohio State has not had NFL quarterbacks. They've had quarterbacks where they emphasize the run. They've had a lot of great winning quarterbacks, but Troy Smith and Terrell Pryor and Braxton Miller and JT Barrett, none of those guys were classic NFL quarterbacks. So some part of it is Ohio State was creating NFL players at every position except quarterback. Um, I think there's something to the weather. I think because it's easy to look great on film when you're playing in California and Texas. And sometimes I've seen Big Ten games where the football goes like this sideways. And so I think somehow in the evaluation, the NFL forgets that sometimes. And I didn't want to overemphasize this, but the Big Ten plays good defense. And I'm not taking a shot at the Big 12. But over the years, people have said a lot of things about other conferences that don't play defense. And so when you look at Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Kirk Cousins and Russell Wilson and C.J. Beathard, our five Big Ten quarterbacks who started in the NFL last year, none of them were first-round picks. I think to some level the NFL has failed in evaluating Big Ten quarterbacks because sometimes they don't look as good because it's kind of harder to look good. So I think part of it's a fluke, and I think Dwayne Haskins may be the beginning of changing that. He's clearly going to go in the first round. If Ohio State throws the ball more with Ryan Day now, they're going to create more NFL quarterbacks. So it's part fluke, but there is something else here where I think the NFL just kind of failed because they see some guy from California who chucks it around. It's like, yeah, it was sunny. Did you see what it was like at East Lansing in November? They were two for 19, but their hands were frozen. So I blame the NFL. I do find it offensive that we leave out Bo Callahan from Wisconsin. Who's sunny past one famously in draft day. Yeah. Different topic. I never watched that. Actually, you actually I've never watched the movie. You left Doug speechless for like five seconds. It's an impressive Okay, we can do some more Q&A, but let's go ahead and give some stuff away here. Because you guys have been sitting here for a while. Let's give some things away. Two things to give away. The first is going to be a shirt. It does. It has Brownie the Elf on it. It's got Ohio on it. Stan Davison. Stan says, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Uh, where will Nick Chubb finish? Over or under? 1,000 yards. Over. I'm going to say over. 
Well, I'll say over, and here's why. I like. I, I should shut up. I talk too much. The, the, the Browns will face less eight-man boxes. What I mean by that is eight run defenders in the box this year because they will probably spread people out, um, and that's a byproduct of Todd Monken, who likes to spread people out. So I think that that'll be beneficial. Nick Chubb ran into the the most eight-man run defense boxes in the NFL last year and almost ran for a thousand yards, and he only had what three attempts in a game. Maximum by week six, week seven, something like that. So he's a phenomenal talent. He's going to run against less defenders in the box. And gosh, I got to think it's over. I think it's over, but who here thinks that Kareem Hunt's going to take his job? Well, that's why I was going to say, I apologize. I was going to say under. Because I think Kareem Hunt is that good. And maybe him missing half the season is going to mean he's not going to get on the field as much. But Kareem Hunt, if he's Kareem Hunt in Kansas City is the second-best skill player on this team behind Odell. He's that good. And he I, think I, might disagree with that. I think I might disagree with that. Nick Chubb, all the stats that everyone has cited about Nick Chubb after contact, Nick Chubb making yards on his own, no offense to Kareem Hunt, who's a good player. That Kansas City offense was an offense where there was some stuff going on there that could make a running back look good. I feel like there were times last year that what Nick Chubb got, Nick Chubb got more on his own. I am not necessarily on the bandwagon of, Kareem Hunt's going to take Nick Chubb's carries. I, I don't know if he will because he's going to miss half the season. I think if this were a competition starting at zero in the spring, I think Kareem Hunt wins that job. We're not just talking good numbers. We're talking Marshall Falk-like numbers in his first two years. That's not an exaggeration. He is that good. Kareem Hunt can do everything Nick Chubb can do, plus a bunch of other stuff. And I, think and I, I love Nick Chubb. This is a great running back to him. So. Too many good players! Yeah, it's, it's, it'll be really interesting to see how they divide up uh, the workload when Kareem Hunt comes off of his suspension. But I bring this up. I'm, I'm always the Debbie Downer, and I always have to bring this up all the time. But I really think that we need to look at some of the defenses that the Browns played in the last eight games of the season last year. They played some horrible, I mean Horrible, horrible defenses, and I'm not. T- that's not taking anything really away from Nick Chubb, but over a consistent period of time, a consistent basis, you want to see how he's going to stack up against Kareem Hunt. Okay, our next winner here. Is, did I interrupt somebody? Okay. Our next winner here going to get a $100 entertainment package. So that includes free valet parking out here. Uh, two free tickets to a concert of your choice, and a $35 gift card to get you started on whatever here. So, the winner is, oh boy, Thomas, I don't know if it's Reen or Reed from, Thomas Ryan from Strongsville. Oh, okay. see here. You have three questions on here, so let's see. Uh, another quick one. We sort of touched on this already, but this is sort of a prediction. Is Duke Johnson still a Brown next week? Yes or no? Is he still a Brown next week? I, I don't... Uh, I, I do think so. I don't think they're going to get what they want to get in a trade for him. Um, right now, I think it'll be an interesting trade either later in the, the training camp process or maybe later toward the trade deadline. Um, there we gave, but I but I do think he's certainly being discussed. That it's a really tough question because they don't want to just give him away. By the same token, do you really want to move forward uh, with a team that's all raring to go with somebody that really doesn't want to be here? So 
you know, I think if they have the opportunity and the right thing comes along on draft weekend, they will trade him. Uh, but like Jake said, will they get what they want? It's a tough call. I have no idea about this. Just by himself, what's his value? If it was a straight-up trade for a pick, let's say, what pick would you get for him? I mean, running backs don't go for much. What did Jordan the, Bears, the Bears just got like a fifth Jordan for a guy that had a thousand-yard season not that long ago. Here, we got somebody right here. Would you trade Duke for a fifth? No. Could you make a package where we have those three picks in the fifth round and include him into it to move up? I mean, I think that's what sort of you were saying, even like the idea. Yeah, I mean, of it, it could be up. something like that, where where he becomes part of a package and a deal to move up for a Jeffrey Simmons or someone else like that in the first round. Something like that can happen. But the thing about Duke that's a little different than a traditional running back is, obviously, as we have seen. You can split him out wide. You can put him in the nickel. He's as much of a pass catcher as he is a runner of the football. Okay, let's do it. we got a question right here. And it turns out i got another mug sitting here, so this one is yours. I swear I didn't drink out of this one. <laughs> My question is, is I'm hearing all this about this Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb, but... Nick Chubb is going to be here for five years. Don't we have him for five years? And we had Duke Johnson signed. But Kareem Hunt's on. We only have a one-year deal with this guy. I mean, who's to say? Why would we alienate what we have signed for a guy who have a one-year? I mean, there's no guarantee he's going to be back this year. I mean, so why trade Duke Johnson? Well, now you would do so in part that's my friend Rodney, isn't it? That's it. <laughs> Does Mary Kate know every single person in this room? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Um, but, but now I forgot what I was going to say. What was I going to say? About Duke? <laughs> why would you, why, if Hunt's only going to be here one year, why would you alienate Chubb or want to give up on Duke? Well, you wouldn't want to give up on Duke Johnson if he wanted to be here. But I think the fact that he has asked to be traded, I do think that that changes the game. Now, it doesn't mean that you're just going to go out and and grant him his wish. Uh, But I do think that you need to get everybody going in the same direction. You need to get everybody on this train uh, because they're going to the Super Bowl in 2020. All right, we're going to wrap up here shortly. Um, last call for questions. We can do maybe two, maybe three more. We'll see uh, We'll see what we got here. I want to ask a question real quick. I didn't say Can you there. guys, are you guys free to do another one of these, like the week between the AFC Championship game before the Browns play in the Super Bowl? Yes? Okay. Just checking. And we'll, and we'll be doing it in Miami as well. So book your, book your flights now. All right, what's your question? Do the panel think that Baker Mayfield is enough of an alpha dog in the locker room in his second year to kind of control it? I mean, that's, for those of you that didn't hear the question, is, is Baker Mayfield enough of an alpha dog to kind of control that locker room? And that, that's part of what John Dorsey loved in him, right, Mary Kay? I think so. He is not afraid of anyone or anything. I mean, you know, we've seen him call out coaches. We've seen him call on fans. We've seen him call out teammates to, you know, not show up. But if they're not going to give 100%, absolutely 100%, he is the alpha dog male of that locker room. And I think, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. 
And, and Mary, Mary Kay mentioned this in passing, but if you have a chance to go to training camp this year, go to training camp because it is going to be competitive. Baker is a trash talker. Yes. Demarius Randall is a trash talker. There's a lot of trash talkers on both sides of that ball, so it's going to be a fun training camp, but you're going to be right there on top of it. And Dan predicts that the baby pools will be gone this year, right, Dan? I don't know. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. What, what have you got? It's been reported that Patrick Peterson might be available in the trade. Two years left, $24 million. Okay. LSU product, 28 years old. Cornerback. Would you consider Dorsey do something like that now? Duke for Patrick Peterson. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I saw all that today, too. That's, that's very interesting. It's intriguing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's something to look at and explore if he actually really wants out. I don't know if it's to that point yet, but something to think about. Isn't this how the whole Odell Beckham Jr. thing started? We weren't sure if he wanted out. And then it just kept steamrolling and steamrolling, and then it became reality. One of, one of the things we talked about this is, is they have so many young players. That's why I think like the Beckham move is so smart. Olivier Vernon, you're not thinking necessarily long-term with those guys, but an established veteran that you can get for two years, he'll be, you know, get his two years, then when you have to pay Mayfield and Garrett, he's gone. Again, I think that's the right kind of move. So are they going to do it? But I would think about something like that for sure. Okay, oh, Jake, go ahead. No, I'm echoing everybody else. Pick 49, if they can handle that, I wouldn't touch next year's draft because I think there is some long-term planning that has to start happening when guys contracts. Because they can't – this is something I talked to Doug about. They can't pay everybody. Eventually, all these really good players – too many good players. Like, it's going to eventually <laughs> – T-shirts in the lobby afterward. Too many good eventually players. Eventually, have to pay all of those guys. So they have to evaluate replacing some of those guys with rookie contract-type players. You don't want to risk or jeopardize too many straight drafts. But – if you could get Patrick Peterson, who's one of the NFL's elite corners, for a second-round pick and a fifth, maybe, I would run to the phone and make that call. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I'll come to you. I have a question here, and you'll be our last one over here. You know, you mentioned having to pay guys. You're watching these pass rushers, right, getting all this big money. Miles Garrett is up for an extension after this season. Of course, they have five years of it, but he's going to get paid a lot of money soon. Baker Mayfield, the year after him, is going to get paid a lot of money. You shouldn't be scared of that, but you also have to know it's coming. Go ahead. I'm uh, very thankful that we have John Dorsey, but what if something happens to John Dorsey? What confidence do we have in the decision-making by the Browns? What would happen to him? This is a line of succession. Like if the Steelers send an assassin to take out John Dorsey because the Browns are too good now? Well, one of the things is... So Jimmy Haslam's still the owner, right? And everything's going great. I don't know if all of a sudden we have faith in top to bottom of the Browns organization, but you don't have to. You just have to have enough of the right people in the right place. John Dorsey is the right guy for this job right now, and that's enough for me. And, and I do think that they have total faith in his management team. Elliot Wolf would be the next man up. And, uh, and, and I think that they feel that Elliot would be able to step up and do the, the job that John's doing. And Dorsey's no longer in Kansas City either. And they seem to be doing pretty good. You know, I think the people coming up, you teach those people who are below you to do the job. 
yeah, the Dorsey tree is, is definitely starting to spread. We're seeing it in Kansas City, of course, in Indianapolis as well. Chris Ballard is a, a John Dorsey disciple, so that, that tree has, has started to spread. Speaking of, like, you know, people trying to take out John Dorsey at training camp a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, Mary Kay. Mike Pettin, right, running training camp practice, there was a drone flying overhead, just some random drone. They stopped everything and cleared the field. So, you know, they are paranoid about everything in the NFL. So they probably have a, they probably have a plan. All right, last question here. So I was sitting here when you were, uh, Mary Kay, when you were talking about the locker room. And I could understand Baker and his personality. I can understand OBJ, maybe Jarvis. But who else in the locker room has that type of personality where Freddie has to do that management? Well, Demarius Randall is another very strong, strong personality. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's super widespread, but all it takes is three or four guys like that, you know, to to kind of change the dynamic and can, you know, any one of those guys can uh, take over a practice if, you know, if they're not in the mood to get along with everybody that day or whatever. So it doesn't take a lot. And I think there are enough on this team that it's just something that everyone's going to have to be aware of. Well, this was fun. We talked draft. We talked rounds. A couple things before we go. You all are sitting out there with your phones, and you're thinking, God, I wish Dudley Maurice would text me. Send your number. I'll do it right now. I wish Mary Kay would text me. Well, lucky for you, we've got Project Text. You can sign up. It's at cleveland.com slash browns, I believe. Probably cleveland.com slash OSU as well. Uh, what is it, $3.99 a month, like 13 cents a day. Uh, they send you texts every day, stuff that doesn't appear on the website or in the paper or anything like that. It's exclusive stuff. Uh, go check that out uh, if you want to. I don't know if you guys have like an example text that you've sent. I know Doug. No, but it's, it's just like little tidbits, a little analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the kind of stuff you would talk about on a podcast, but it's just in your phone once or twice a day. Yeah, but what if we say, too many good texts? <laughs> I will say, on my behalf, no one has ever said that about my text, so I, but, I mean, it's in Cleveland, it's the Cleveland way now. What I've been trying to do with Project Text, and I'm sure Doug is doing the same thing, is uh, I try to just give an opinion on sort of the story of the day or, or or what's going on. And really, that doesn't appear anywhere else that day, or maybe I'll write a column, a little column or a take on it in a few days. But today, for instance, uh, I did my opinion on OBJ not being here for the voluntary mini-camp. It's not just the off-season program. This is an actual mini-camp given to a new head coach. So I gave my opinion on that in Project Text, and those are the kinds of things we're trying to provide. Yeah, and you can also interact as well. They'll see texts back to them and maybe even respond back to a few of those. So check those out, cleveland.com slash browns. I know there's a link there, cleveland.com slash OSU. It's not just them. Hoynesy's doing it. We've got entertainment people doing it. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Uh, you can sign up to get texts about it. Uh, we also have a Browns newsletter that goes out. You can sign up for that. Cleveland.com slash Browns, all that stuff. So are, are we doing final statements from the panel before sure. we leave? Why not? Closing statements. I just wanted to say this before you go out. Jake, the world. Jake just gave a look like I didn't yeah. prepare anything. I'm going to do a final statement. Um, I get this sometimes on Twitter or when I'm talking about 12 and 4, which I've been predicting since December. And I would advise you, don't give in 
to the people who are trying to be cautious about the Browns. Because any caution about the Browns is built only on the losing of the past. And the losing of the past has nothing to do with the 2019 Cleveland Browns. The way the NFL is built to work, you can flip it in an instant. This team and this franchise has built a complete team around a dynamic young quarterback. This is what winning in the NFL looks like. Lean in. Do not be afraid of this. Don't try to soft-pedal it and be worried. What if it doesn't work out? Your team that you have been waiting for two decades to do this, your team is ready to win. Jump in with both feet. You know what? If it doesn't work out, we can all wallow in that together later. Right now, get in on this. Every bit of this is real. This is happening right now. Scott as well have been into locker rooms of 1-15 and 0-16 and and teams, and it stinks. This year we're all going to be exhausted, but it's going to be fun. They're playing New England in prime time, the Rams in prime time, the Niners in prime time. They've got CBS games. You guys are going to hear Tony Romo predicting Freddie Kitchen's plays. So I'm a dog. Whatever happens, whatever your prediction, just enjoy it this year. We've had a lot of fun. That's Jake Burns. Oh, Mary Kay, were you going to say something? I was just going to thank all you guys for coming out here tonight. I mean, we really appreciate it. We really do. And we really appreciate uh, We met some people that are Project Texters, so we hope you're enjoying that. If you're not, look for it. But just thank you so much for just hanging in there with us all the time. So, same here. That's Jake Burns, Doug Lamarice, Mary Kay Kevin, Scott Matsko on Man Lobby. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Enjoy the draft.